You're listening to the New Century Multiverse. Steamheart. Chapter 8. Armour. From the Journal of James Penrose, District of Columbia, April 1883. Back at Langley, Team Steam, as Abigail has now dubbed us, and the National Intelligence Agency as a whole, were going through a period of intense transition and preparation. We had slept on the first night in a new accommodation that had been set up for us. Separate bedrooms in a townhouse. Thomas Arlington had expressed some reservations about having us live in Washington itself for the duration, but his daughter, Truth, maintained that we should be as integrated as possible. There's absolutely no point holding them up in a cage far from the crowd. They need to know the people they're about to be representing across America. Through no coincidence, our house was adjoined with that of Butler and Captain Oakley. A closet had been renovated into a doorway between the two houses, and we were talking until the early hours before finally retiring to our respective rooms. The next morning I awoke from one of the most comfortable beds I have been in since England to find Annie hammering on my door. Rise and shine, lazy bones. We're taking you to the shooting range. After a hasty breakfast and a coach ride, we found ourselves back at Langley, stood in front of an array of targets. My heart sank. Go ahead. Show us your aim. I was never much of a shot before I lost my eye. I assure you these results will be disappointing. It's all right. We just want to see what you're capable of. All right. This is what I'm incapable of. Ah. I told you. Thank you, James. That's going to make mine seem better. Well, at least you hit the target. Would that have killed the guy? No. Would it have taken him out of the battle? Only if you really love that finger. Pistols are tricky things, even with two eyes. Try with these scoped rifles. Here you go. Now aim at that target down there. If you say so. I can't see through this when I shoot right-handed. I'm going to have to hold the rifle on the other side. I know a one-eyed sniper, and he retrained himself to be better than he was before his injury. I swear to God Almighty. Here, try again. Anything? Sixth one got his knee. Hot damn. Well, don't worry yourselves too much. We'll be there on the team. Butler and I can more than make up for any shortfall in the shooting department. Can't we, my darling? I'll talk to Harry. See if we can get something special rustled up for you, too. Seven days later, I stood with Harry as she circled the steamcraft we would be riding in, staring at the raised cockpit. She seemed to be talking to herself more than to me. There were many aspects of this young lady that were unusual, and each time I thought I had found her, another layer presented itself. She had some childlike mannerisms, but seemed unfamiliar with everyday courtesies, but moved so surely in her own environment, cat-like and confident. What intrigued me most was her mind. 
It was throwing out points of consideration so fast that her mouth could barely keep up. We're vulnerable at the front. If we have to barge through a really tall gate, the impact it's going to have on her nose might do real damage. Even if I reinforce her. Too easy to break. She seemed to be talking to herself more than to me. Look at her wit, though. The wheels go out so far on either side, any gates we rush would have to span 20 feet. Hmm. Still too vulnerable. Perhaps some kind of battering ram at the front, then. I put in taking off my jacket and laying it upon a nearby stool to stand beside her. It would have to be very heavy, and that's a lot of weight to push. She replied, walking away from me. We'll burn more fuel, and we'd have to run slower. Something to stabilize her wouldn't make for a smoother ride. I smiled as I watched her brain go. What are those things they put at the front of trains called? She stepped over to a collection of pictures she had at a workbench and held up one of a powerful locomotive. Cow catchers. But they're supposed to move cattle to the sides of the train so that they don't get crushed under its wheels. Their dense bones would gum up the mechanisms under there and... I gestured to the enormous towering black tires on either side of Steamheart. You throw a cow or a person to one side, and they're going under those. Harry walked away from me as I was saying the words. Mm. I followed dutifully, watching what she was doing. But it was as though I were invisible and had dropped from her memory. Mm. Finally, she turned back to me, and once again... I existed in her world. Train drivers have no choice but to go forward or back. She countered. I can drive around cows. I nodded and studied her face. Was I being rude or pushy, prying too much or intruding on her territory? She avoided my eye. Would you like me to leave you be? What? No. I'm enjoying your company. She sprinted lightly over to inspect the midsection. We're going to need some powerful headlamps, too, so I can see where I'm going if I'm driving through the dark or the mist. She had drifted mentally when we first met, and Butler had cautioned me about the spells she was prone to. But to witness one in the middle of conversation without warning was disconcerting. Was this what others felt like around me? Two days after that, accompanied by Annie and Butler, Harry took Abigail and I up to a place called Weapons Lab A, a workshop teeming with inventive people, all testing out new devices. She brought us to the rear of the area where she had laid out a table full of her creations. Beside this crouched an old Japanese man in traditional robes, sporting long grey hair in a topknot. He was sharpening the blade of a bright curved katana against a whetstone. He continued attending to this quietly as our conversation proceeded. Not far off, a thick-set fellow stood wearing what looked like the armor of a Roman centurion, whilst another man beat at his chest with a baseball bat. Come on, put some back into it, son. <clears throat> this is as hard as I can hit the bat is cracking. One more. Sonnein <clears throat> I spent seven hours carving that. Well, what would be the point of testing this on some old cheap stick? Good work, Hillary. Next up, we'll try Clementine. Um, Mr. Tudor, can you keep it down for a few minutes? I'm, uh, I'm showing off some stuff here. Of course, Miss Arlington. Thank you. Come on, boy, you can take me outside and beat the daylights out of me there. Wait, Samuel Tudor? As in the creator of the Clementine Field Mace? Can you sign my handbook? Well, yeah. Nobody's asked me that before, but there's a first time for everything. Looks like you've got quite a collection here already. Yeah, my line in the jungle will be getting a moment with President Grant. Uh, 
Not that it ain't an honor to meet you too, sir. I love your work. Very lethal. Grant is not taking visitors these days. Thomas Arlington had approached from the far end of the room and now regarded Abigail sternly. I heard. Do you think he's going to be able to see out this coming election? We've made arrangements for a suitable vice president. The young man nursing the broken bat spoke up. The new vice president. Actually, I know he's not officially in office yet, but uh, Sean Riley was instrumental in hiring me. I'm covering the bats for the new baseball teams, the Washington Statesman and the Boston Red Stockings. He is overseeing the recruitment. Oh, man. When are they going to start playing? Mid-July, said Captain Oakley. Can we stick around till then? A baseball game? Of course not. But if we can get back before the beginning of October, we might be able to see one of their last games. Here you go, Sergeant Gray. Thank you, Captain Tudor. Come on, Batsman. It was, uh, it was nice to meet you. Abigail blew on the ink lightly as they left, glancing my way to mutter. Search for four months for someone who spoke German. We're in Washington five minutes and there's one in every room. Whilst I understand and approve of your miniature quest to meet everyone who helped contribute to the handbook, you're a few weeks late to find Lawton Sadler. The director announced grimly. He was murdered while working for me. (sighs) Sorry to hear that. Abigail seemed genuinely pained. I'm afraid your list of signees is going to diminish over the coming years, as the Reaper takes his toll. I surmised that he was feeling guilty about Sadler, but there was a generous hint of fatalism in there as well. Director level with me. Is Grant sick? We're crossing into classified territory here. Aren't I a higher-grade government agent yet? Not the level you're discussing. What I mean is, it seems like there is a chance he might not last until October. Could we just give your blasted autograph book to the director and see if he can get it signed for us? No, because I'm not an errand boy. Um, I won't go and ask anyway, sir. I have to keep this for the road. There is no telling who we might cross paths with out there. Don't want to miss a rare one. You sound like a butterfly collector. It's dehumanizing. And I say that as someone who has been prone in the past to... I'd call this a celebration of humanity. People, can we stop... Dr. Penrose, are you two going to be able to focus on the task at hand? I thought celebrating humanity was part of the task at hand. That's the garnish truth is adding. Your job is to get yourselves to the origin point, whilst following all orders from your superior officers. Hey! Harry's voice echoed round the chamber. Excuse me. Daddy? I have these things. I need to show them. We're all sorry, Harry. What have you got? Abigail asked, taking her glare off the director. Well, first of all, Miss Annie here told me about your trouble with shooting straight. So, I figured, rather than make you two a more accurate gun, why not make you one where you just don't have to be all that accurate? John Browning? William Winchester and I came up with this lever-action, short-barrel, short-stock shotgun. You can operate it two-handed, or even one-handed, if you flip it like this, and pretty much point it at whatever you want to drop. Here you go. It's not loaded. This thing is badass. And I got you both a leg holster. So you can sling it down under your coat, Abigail. Right, right here. Thank you, Harry, but I don't think I'll be needing one, I said after some hesitation. Harry looked confused. Uh, But Daddy said you would, though. I'm a doctor. 
I've taken the Hippocratic Oath to do no permanent harm. This will most definitely harm whomever I point it at. Permanently. Oh. If I was capable of accuracy, I could perhaps kneecap someone, if doing so would prevent the death of others. You know, weigh up the consequences of inaction. As I've had to do in the past. But this thing? If my aim was off and the shot pierced the femoral artery on the thigh, they would be dead within minutes. James is right. And I respect his stance on this. And you know, if I'm going to be totally honest, I'm the same. Oh. I mean, I haven't taken his Hippocratic oath or anything, but when Carl pulled our asses out of that house fire, I realized a thing or two about the way I'd been conducting myself, and I didn't like what I found. See, I was all for shooting him dead back when we were on the road. Getting rid of human obstacles the old-fashioned way. Captain Oakley showed me there were alternatives. I looked at her with curiosity. She had said something to this effect last autumn, but now, months later, it had become an ideology. Annie shook her head at this. When those alternatives fail, Gray, I'm more than prepared to kill. Yeah, well, I'm not. Not anymore. If you or I had shot Carl back then, maybe he wouldn't have been there to rescue us. To save your life from that mediocre... Manticore. We needed that man alive. We're alive because of him. I can't be trigger-happy. I didn't know this when I put these guns together. It's all right, Harry. I'll take the shotgun. But I'm going to be pointing it and firing off warning shots. Not trying to kill folk. Fortunately, killing other people is not a requirement. Though I'll confess I'm deeply troubled by your stance of pacifism. As a soldier of the reunified States Army, you are required to carry out the duties of all soldiers. I ain't a pacifist. And if I'm ordered to take somebody out, I'll do it, sir. But I'm going to be working towards alternatives. Your book taught me that. I'm pretty sure that was Sarah's doing. Well, she's a pretty smart lady. More important than your willingness to take another life, which I assure you will be tested at some point, Thomas went on, a tiny curve of his lip betraying that this compliment had been well received. Is the matter of your personal safety. Master Yagyu, may we see it? The Japanese man seemed to notice us for the first time, laid the sword blade carefully upon a folded cloth, and raised himself to his feet. Thomas, you're looking well. His voice was rich and deep and resonant, calming like the creaking of an ancient tree in the wind. At this the director politely bowed, and we couldn't help doing the same. Sensei? Said Harry. This is Sergeant Abigail Gray and Dr. James Penrose. They're going to be with me when I take Steamheart out on the road. So, these are the two who need some serious protection. It is good to meet you. He shook us each by the hand. Harry and I have been hard at work. Would you like to present what we came up with for them? Yes, sir. This is the prize of our collection. Master Yagyu and I have been developing this for a while. And then, the two of you came along and presented us with maybe the best use of it. Now, it might take a little more time to make a second one of these, but we've got the design pretty much down, so (laughs) that's the hard part. She drew back the dust sheet from a humanoid figure to reveal an 
absolutely exquisite suit of armor. It was partway between the garb of a samurai and the clothing of the fabled ninja, light overlapping plates, darkly lacquered, polished, and finely detailed, over a flexible underlayer with an enclosed helmet bearing an intimidating looking mask. This is our prototype V3 armor. The V1 was that heavy plating you saw on Mr. Tudor. I call that the turtle, but uh, it's, it's way too bulky to use all the time. I think this could be the way forward on that. We utilize the best of time-honored Japanese designs with the best of the new American. <laughs> I call it the scorpion suit. Not just because you can move and respond quickly during sudden, dangerous situations, but also because the plates are coated with stone spring. Same as the panels on Steamheart. This could stop a bullet at close range. We're thinking you both could wear these for the duration of the trip. You want me in that? Yeah, I, I, I do. Will, will, you, will you try it on? Warily. Abigail went behind a screen, and over the next few minutes, proceeded to slip on the V3. How is it? Abigail stepped out, looking both extremely uncomfortable and rather amazing. Very fearsome, Sergeant Gray, exclaimed Yagyu, and he was right. The overlapping plates clanked quietly as she walked, giving her a strange, new, formidable presence. You can move around, right? Right. Well, how does it feel? Weird. Hmm. Try, try the helmet on. Oh. I, I need to. Yes. I need to adjust it to your head size. Can I take it off now, please? What's wrong? Ah. <sighs> oh. <sighs> it's. What? It's too much. This whole suit. Too elaborate for me. I would never be able to relax or let my guard down. Um. We don't want you to let your guard down. And I couldn't just keep it with me for emergencies. It takes too long to put on. You can get used to it. I don't think so, sir. I really don't like being stuck in tight spaces. I can just about bear being inside Steamheart, but that helmet made me feel like I was... drowning in the dark. I'm so sorry, Abigail. No, it's okay. Maybe James will like it. I'll try. Oh, okay. I I do hope someone finds a use for this. Master Yagyu and I really did work hard to make it comfortable. Over a few minutes, I changed into the scorpion suit. But as I stood there, helmet on, and tried to breathe normally, I realized that this was not something I could get used to. This was a suit for a warrior. That was not me. I shook my head, sadly. The most finely crafted suit of armor in the Western Hemisphere, and we can't give it away. I'm not doing very well at this. My sincerest apologies to both of you. The craftsmanship is impeccable, but it is hard enough for me to see with one eye without also being impeded by a mask. Well, I guess we can go back to the drawing board. <sighs> well, hang on. We know the V1 is no good for our needs, but what of the V2? Oh, uh, my, my daddy's wearing it. She's right. This jacket I'm wearing is armored. Looks like his old jacket, too. You have to get in real close to see the difference. 
Director, can I try that one on? He paused and studied her, before shrugging. I don't see why not. He removed the red jacket and Abigail pulled it on, walking up and down and flexing her arms. Can you make me something like this, Harry? I, I'm pretty sure I can. Uh, you give me your coat and in a few days and I'll see what I can do. Sold. Would you take mine as well? Of, of course. Thank you, James. No, thank you. Master Yagyu had begun meticulously rearranging the armor upon its display. I spotted him smiling quietly to himself as Harry perked up. I guess we'll put this whole thing away for another day. Your coat, Mr. Arlington. I'm happy we could find armor to your liking. We need to keep you two alive. On that note, Director, I have a hypothesis. Go ahead. Well, we've established that when Charlotte died, whatever power, force, energy, ability, I don't know what to call it yet. Endowment. Oh, that's actually rather good. This endowment moved from her body to the orb, which I presume was both empty at the time and possibly the original vessel for this very power. You presume? In the absence of any further data, the orb would appear to be a deliberately positioned holding container. And so would we. Which leads me to the question, what would happen should one of us, as containers, break? You mean, what if you die? Precisely. Where does it go? If you recall, sir, Professor Krieger in his journal pages was very anxious to get away from Charlotte before she expired. He stated that he would be struck blind and would be unable to take care of the equally sightless Greta alone. So, unless this was purely theoretical on his part, we must assume this endowment would have passed to the nearest living person. Were Abigail or I mortally wounded, it seems like another potential vessel would not need to be touching us to receive the endowment, and their personal choice in the matter is manifestly irrelevant. However, if nobody and no orb is close by to us at the point of death, would the force remain in our bodies until another person drew near, or would it immediately flow out and escape into the atmosphere, or even search for another host? Well, um, thoroughly creeped out by that notion. Abigail, consider that if I die close to you, you could end up entirely blind and imbued with this endowment in totality. You would effectively be placed in the same scenario as Greta. Well, nobody knows how this works yet, right? Said Harry. So, there doesn't seem to be a good way to test this. Not without killing one of you. Pass. Abigail muttered, but the director now looked upon me with what might have been a new measure of respect. That's some impressively perspicacious thinking, Dr. Penrose, he said, sending a thrill of accomplishment through my frame. And believe it or not, since I wrapped my head around your condition, that's something I've been considering myself. Which is why I have appointed these two, Major Butler and Captain Oakley, as not only heads of this team, but as your personal shadows. Sir? Well... Oh, it's a simple enough job. You bodyguard Penrose and Gray, same as you've been doing for Sarah and I. But the added caveat is that if something should happen to them, should either of them die, you will be there as a backup host. Butler, you'll be shadowing Penrose. Oakley, you'll be shadowing Gray. 
That means you two need to share your findings on the use of any abilities, because you could simply be the first of many agents in a long chain who will bear these endowments. Due to your enlisted status when you discovered it, I consider this power, whatever its nature, to be the property of the reunified state's government. You two are not special, but what is held inside your bodies most certainly appears to be. I agree. Gee, thanks for the vote of confidence there, Doc. Now, we have to go and seek truth, because apparently you ladies need to be measured up for your party frocks. Goddamn. I know, don't even get me started. Later that night, Thomas Arlington summoned Butler and I. Sarah was not in the room, and we sat, nervously watching his somber expression. If they become injured, if they are captured without hope of rescue, if you suspect one of them will go rogue, leave the party, or otherwise become lost to this mission, I want you to execute that person on the spot. Cleanly and without a struggle. You will put a bullet through the forehead of your charge, and if the endowment does leave their body, you will take it into your own. If the other reacts to this in a way that will compromise the mission, your partner will execute them. Oh, Jesus. And if we can't? Is that going to be the case? We... We don't know. Well, you had better know. Because right now I will take you off this expedition. I will send Steed and Latrum in your place. They are steady and trustworthy agents and will carry out their orders to the letter. For my part, I would like to keep you in Washington to continue shadowing Sarah and I. But it is more important that you be out there. You have a pre-existing rapport with the pair of them. And you have shown repeated courage and ingenuity under fire. Well, if it's like that, then... Then I'd rather be the one to assess the situation. Then I'll know if there was any way it could have been saved. You must not hesitate. I am trusting you two with the fate of America. And perhaps the world. You don't trust James and Abigail? I don't know them. They have to earn that the way you have done. You are my agents in the field. You represent me. Watch them. Keep them safe. Learn what you can. Prepare yourselves for the possibility of playing host to these endowments, if there is no other way. Understood. Then answer me this. When the time comes, can you find it within yourself to kill James and Abigail? I will, sir. I will, sir.
You have been listening to episode 8 of Steamheart, Armor, written and directed by Alexander Shaw. Annie Oakley and Harriet Arlington, performed by Loretta Saylor. Thomas Arlington, John Hillerich, Toshiro Yagyu and James Penrose, performed by Alexander Shaw. Abigail Gray, performed by Sharon Shaw. Frank Butler and Samuel Tudor, performed by Spencer Lieb. Make Your Decision by Dan Philipson of Shockwave Sound. Eastminster and Ossuary, composed and performed by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. Many soundscapes by Tabletop Audio. The New Century Multiverse is funded by Patreon. Our $15 patrons get sponsor credit every episode, so thank you too. Joel Robinson, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Joseph Gluck, Kevin Otero, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Lukes, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Dashler, and Lorraine Chisholm. <laughs>